After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, Lord, need it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words.
his or her true identity. In today's text, Jesus has spent the last eight and a half chapters in various locations of his enterprise. Then today, he reveals who he really is. As Jesus' disguise comes off, we see that Jesus presents himself as the king. The king. The Messiah. The Christ. That's English, Hebrew, and Greek. I believe Jesus is presenting himself as the Messiah, the Christ, the King, for at least three reasons. The first is the Messiah's location. This happens on the Mount of Olives, which is not a coincidence. Imagine you are hiking from Matfield Green to Cottonwood Falls. You're making your way upgrade until you get to the Shrump Hill. Then you would come downhill into the county seat. Similarly, Jericho was about the same distance from Jerusalem as Matfield Green is from Cottonwood Falls. And as you come down Shrump Hill, you would see the golf course on one side and the airport on the other. In Jesus' day, coming down from the Mount of Olives, he sees Bethany on one side and Bethphage on the other. Now, besides the fact that Matfield is to the south and Jericho was to the east, the distances and the elevations are pretty close so that you can get an image of what is happening as verse 28 begins. See, the Mount of Olives was historically significant because it connects Israel's greatest king, human king that is, King David, with its ultimate king, the Messiah. The mount is mentioned in 2 Samuel 15, verse 30, as David flees to escape Absalom's revolution. And so King David finds refuge on the Mount of Olives. In Ezekiel chapter 11 and Ezekiel chapter 43, it speaks of the Messiah's future appearances on Olivet to judge Israel for its unfaithfulness. And Zechariah chapter 14 verse 4 mentions the Mount of Olives as the place where Messiah will finally reveal himself. Later on in the New Testament, we, would, we will see that as Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives, he will come back in the way that he left. So this place, the Mount of Olives, as the promised place where Messiah would be revealed is not a coincidence, as Luke tells the story. Not only is this a unique location, but I believe that Jesus is revealing himself as the Messiah because of the Messiah's Mount, not Mount of Olives, but the Mount on which he rode, the unridden colt. 
The picture before us in verse 30 is not of a single colt all by himself. Most likely, this was a livery stable on the edge of town, and several animals would have been available for rent or for borrow. And one of the animals that was available was tied up next to the other animals, a colt that had not been ridden, a colt that had not been broken. And Jesus says, get that one because I need it. Now we read about the the owners of the cult, of the cult saying to them. The the plural sense, the way this says this is the owners of the cult, it hints that they may actually have been the stable hands that worked for the one owner who actually owned the beast. And these stable hands that ran the livery would not put up a resistance because the disciples' master had already worked out with their master the borrowing of this one animal. See, so he's not stealing, he's not taking without permission to the hands. This makes perfect sense. Your boss, your people talk to my people, and so that's why you're taking this animal. But notice this is not a stallion. This is a donkey. And donkeys were often used for kingly processions because they're slow and steady, where stallions would be used for a military parade. Because Jesus is coming to Jerusalem as the king, but not as a military conqueror. So he's not riding the beast of a general He's riding the animal of a king. This was actually prophesied many, many years before in God's word in the book of Zechariah. Where we read, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous in having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus mounts Shrump Hill. He's coming down into Cottonwood Falls, riding on a gentle donkey as a picture of their king. As a matter of fact, we go on to see a little bit more about this mount. We, we see that the people are laying their jackets, their cloaks, on the ground or on the beast on which he sat. And what's the significance of putting your jacket on the ground? It was a symbolic way of telling whoever is riding on the beast that whatever is yours is more important than what is mine. Everything that I am, everything that I have is less than you. And so it was a sign of submission as they took off their coats and as they honored the one who rode on the colt. Some scholars have even pointed out that for a sacrifice to be acceptable, it had to be an animal that had never been worked. 
It is this picture of Jesus being brought into Jerusalem in order to be sacrificed that draws meaning from an unridden cult. Not only is he the king of all creation, not only does he have dominion as the one who created it all, but he comes as a humble king on an unridden cult in order to be sacrificed. He's in a unique place. He's riding on a unique mount. But we also see that he receives a unique chant. The chant is, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The halal was a collection of psalms that were often sung during feast times. It's Psalms 113 through 118. So just as we know the Christmas carols, and we sing them every year, not before Thanksgiving, but as we sing the Christmas carols to celebrate that feast, the Psalms of Hallel were the Jewish carols that they would sing. And in the last chapter, Psalm 118, we read in verse 26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, some of you have already recognized that I haven't said anything about the palm branches. And on Palm Sunday, we wave palm branches because they waved palm branches as Jesus rode in on the donkey. But Luke doesn't mention the palm branches. He also doesn't mention the word Hosanna because Luke is writing to a Greek audience and the Greeks would not be familiar with the intricacies of the Jewish way of life. The waving of palm branches to honor a king was a Jewish thing. And so Luke leaves that out because it's not important to his readers. He leaves out the word Hosanna because that word would have to be explained to the people. But instead, the phrase glory in the highest is what we read in Luke's gospel. And it's a translation of the very word Hosanna. The word would have been unfamiliar. The waving of the palm branches, a decidedly Jewish practice, would be un. It would need to be explained, so Luke just leaves it out. So the location, the mount, the chant that Jesus refuses to silence show that he is revealing himself as, and he is receiving honor as, the Messiah King, the promised one. But the arrival of this promised king looks very different than the people expected. Because as he reveals himself as as king, we see in verses 41 through 44 that the Messiah challenges their political assumptions. The Messiah is changing what they thought Messiah would look like. I believe that we actually have in the pages of Scripture two different crowds. The crowd in verses 36 through 38 that we have read about today is a whole different group than what we'll meet later 
in Luke 22, as Jesus is arrested, the crowd confronts Peter. Aren't you one of his? And then in chapter 23, as Jesus is brought before Pilate, the crowd in 22-23 is very different from this crowd in chapter 19. Because while this entry into Jerusalem in the, eye, in the eyes of all of the Galilean peasants who are traveling with him, they're laying their jackets on the ground. They're not the residents of Jerusalem. Residents of Jerusalem. By the way, would that be Jerusalemites or Jerusaleminians? My spell checker allows Jerusalemites, but it does not allow Jerusaleminians. So we're going to assume that the people who live in Jerusalem are Jerusalemites. And these Jerusalemites have been so ingrained by the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the Jews, that they're unwilling to acknowledge Jesus as their king. They're unwilling to say, yes, he is the Messiah. The attitude of these dissenters is very clear in verse 39. They want Jesus to silence the crowds and to say, no, 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 I'm not the Messiah. But Jesus says, I won't do it. Jesus says, even if these are silenced, the rocks will cry out that I am the king. I think verse 42 in front of us, when we read about um, that they reject the peace, it's a recognition of the stranglehold that the Pharisees have on the people. And it's easy for us to imagine, regardless of what your political persuasion is, you can find certain channels or networks that cater to your opinion. And you can find other networks that are diametrically opposed. And oftentimes, if you watch this network, they're saying, I can't believe that they're even saying that. And then you tune into this network, and they say, I can't believe they're even saying that. So just as our television news networks are diametrically opposed, the crowds that welcome Jesus are diametrically opposed. One group who had seen his miracles, had heard his teaching, had seen his compassion say, this is the Messiah of God. But the others had been so manipulated by the religious leaders, they refused to acknowledge the truth. In verses 43 through 44 of this text in front of us, it's a prophecy of what will happen militarily because of the bondage and the backroom dealings of these who hold power. One of my background commentaries kind of set the stage in this way. The phrase, peace in heaven, suggests that the messianic peace that Luke connects with Jesus is realized now only in heaven. Since the Jerusalem leadership rejects 
peace on earth that had been promised in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, as the angels appeared to the shepherds. Since they rejected that peace, it must now wait the parousia. That's the fancy commentator word for the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. The rapture, the second coming. For when we wait until the second coming, the rapture to be realized, because although Jesus indeed is the king, spoken of in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Jesus is the king prophesied in Psalm 118, 26, who brings peace to Jerusalem, the peace is presently available only in the spiritual realm. See, to those who wanted a king who was going to change the political landscape, since they rejected him as king, he says, I still offer you peace, but it's not going to be the political peace that you are expecting. While the people have been imagining a political coup as Jesus has been proclaiming a kingdom for the last ten chapters... Jesus was not setting up the overthrow of a city. Jesus was preparing to conquer the human hearts. I believe he's asking us right now, will you surrender your heart to King Jesus? Now, I do believe that a day is coming that Paul described to the Romans, as he says, For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. That day is coming. That time was described to the Philippians as, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. A day is coming, prophesied in Revelation chapter 5. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. There is coming a day when we will all say, Worthy. That will be a future surrender. But a spiritual surrender of your heart has been possible ever since Jesus revealed himself as the Messiah. Right now in Chase County, 2021, Your opportunity is what Peter preached to the Jews in Acts chapter 2. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter preaches to the Jews. And Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, said in Romans chapter 10, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Many in Jesus' day wanted to make Jerusalem great again. And others wanted to build Jerusalem back better. But Jesus weeps here 
because his heart is that the people would surrender and agree that Jesus is Lord. He changed their assumptions of what they thought it was going to look like. But at that time, he was calling for individual heart surrender. And to this day, he continues to call for your heart's surrender to him. See, people misunderstood what Messiah would mean for politics. But they also misunderstood that the Messiah challenges their religious practices. There's a world of difference between the pure and undefiled religion that is prescribed in Scripture and many acts that are done in the name of religion. There's a world of difference because true religion described in James chapter 1 is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What I see in these two is compassion and holiness. There's nothing in here about offerings, nothing in here about sacrifices, nothing in here about baptism or church membership. Pure religion is compassion and holiness. But there's a lot that's done in the name of religion that looks very different than this. And because Jesus needs to call them back to what is true and pure and undefiled, he renews the emphasis upon prayer. When Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, this is a direct quote from Isaiah chapter 56 verse 7. The direct oracle of God and Jesus unashamedly calls it my house. Jesus says, this is not only God's house, or this is not only the house of the Lord. He says, this is my house, and it shall be called a house of prayer. I've been in sports arenas when the chant breaks out, whose house? Evidently, you haven't been in the same arenas. Our house. And they chant, whose house? Our house. And it's a means of intimidating the visiting team. But Jesus, in a sense, asked, whose house? My house. Not to intimidate the visitors, but to invite the outsiders. Because Jesus' quote here in verse 46 leaves out three words from Isaiah 46. In Isaiah 46, the oracle of God says, My house shall be a house of prayer for all peoples. Not just the Jewish peoples, not just the religious peoples, not just the powerful peoples. Jesus says, My house is a place of prayer for all peoples. And the religion of Jesus' day had turned that on its ear. By requiring certain coins and focusing upon the sacrificial animals, the focus had moved away from all people encountering God. 
Jesus says, when you come together, the primary purpose ought to be to encounter our Father. My place will be a house of prayer, a place where your heart and the heart of the Father commune with one another. And prayer doesn't have to be difficult or showy. I modeled in the pastoral prayer four elements that I believe ought to shape our prayer. You don't know what to say. You don't know what, use, what words to use. Just think of acts, A-C-T-S. First, we adore him for who he is. Then we confess our shortcomings, our faults, our sins. Then T, we thank him for his kindness to us. And then, and only then, only after we have adored and confessed and thanked, after this relationship is established, only then do we S, supplicate as we pour out our burdens and the burdens of our brothers and sisters. If you ever leave a service here or elsewhere, and can honestly say, in that service, I adored God. I confessed my sin. I thanked God. And I poured out my burdens. I believe you've been in a good church service. Because Jesus says, my house shall be a house of prayer. But it goes on to say, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. I, I, I think what Jesus is doing here is he wants to discard the focus on personal gain. A robber takes what isn't his for himself. And some of us, when we come to church, whether we are the preacher, the musician, or the people in the pews, we come to take what isn't ours. See, the, the, the act of changing money was actually a service to the pilgrims, and it was a necessity because of what the temple system had become. They had to pay a temple tax, but you could only pay the temple tax with Tiberius coins. Now, you can imagine what the exchange rate was to, turn, to change my Greek coins into Tiberius coins so that you could pay the temple tax. See, the, the sellers were needed in the temple so that the foreign Jews could buy the proper sacrificial animals. So exchanging the coins was necessary. Selling of the animals was necessary. And you'll notice here that Luke does not specifically mention the money changers who exchanged the local currencies for the um, uh, shekels that were required for the temple tax. Back in Exodus chapter 30, beginning in verse 11, you can read that when you pay the temple tax, it had to be this coin. But Jesus' actions against the temple would have been viewed as disruptive to our sacrificial system. And it's blasphemous, according to the Jewish leadership. I, I, I found that when, when I traveled to Russia and to India... 
I found that in each of those countries, they had their own currency. And the airports where we landed um, had exchange booths so that you could exchange any currency for the local currency. But the exchange rate was often inflated because they knew travelers needed local currency if they wanted to hail a taxi and leave the airport. So they kind of had us between a rock and a hard place. You need what I have, you'll pay my price. And I believe that's the den of robbers that Jesus is talking about. Those who started with a good service. Let me provide for you the coins that you need to pay the temple tax. Let me provide for you the animal that you need to sacrifice. Had turned into, now I've got you right where I want you. And you will pay my price if you want to do what is required. And bad things happen when these ancillary services become the main product. When the changing of coins and the buying of animals becomes the main product, Jesus says the main product is that your heart connects with Almighty God, not coins and animals. I know a lot of churches that provide coffee during fellowship time. And I know a few that offer pastries as well. But when churches begin to advertise, come to our location where you can get this brand of coffee and this type of donuts, Starbucks and (coughs) Krispy Kreme, I think something may have been squeezed out of the main focus. See, taking comfort and awe in God's presence was the whole reason to have a temple. But for many, the temple tax, which only could be Jewish coins, and the sale of sacrifice animals had become the whole reason for having a temple. I have seen the gathering of God's people get twisted in a lot of ways. I have been in churches where the weekly gatherings seem to be primarily about the preacher's ability to hold an audience. I've been in churches where the weekly gatherings seem to be primarily about the musician's ability to entertain a crowd. I've been in churches where the weekly gatherings seem to be primarily about people who made business contacts or they showed off their impressive outfits. And I've been in churches where the weekly gatherings seem to be primarily about showing off the architecture of their worship center. And each of these, if the focus is on the preacher, the musicians, the congregation, the coffee pot, God has been robbed. Because the whole purpose of coming here is to engage with him. And to give him the glory, not ourselves. And we finally see in verse 47 that Jesus teaches an unpopular truth. Because part of worshiping God correctly is, it's it's in our prayers. But the communication after we pray to God, the communication comes the other direction as God speaks to us. 
And Jesus, as God in the flesh, when he taught, his words were the word of God. I don't have that same authority. My only authority comes when I proclaim his truth. You don't need my ideas or my impression of world events. I'm not up here to provide stories that you can share at the coffee shop. When Jesus taught, the people were hanging on his words because they were authoritative, they were life-giving, and they were comforting. And the authority, life, and comfort that you need will never be found in my ingenuity or in my communication. They'll only be found in this book. And the religious leaders didn't like it. But they couldn't argue with the results that Jesus got. When I point you to the scriptures, you may not find that verse applauded on Facebook. You won't receive likes and shares. But you can't argue with the truthfulness. When I point to this book, you can count on it. You can rely upon it, even if others do not like it. Our final song this morning is traditionally thought of as a Christmas carol. But just as Jesus took the songs of Hallel to drive home an important point, I want to use this song as a reminder that when Jesus is king, it changes everything. As a matter of fact, his dominion in our lives, changes us now. His future lordship over all creation will last eternally. And I invite you to join with me as we 